Just heard somebody say, there's the old dude. <laughs> Are you ready to go back to school? When I went away to first grade and many, many years ago, I had a pad of paper and a pencil. Now you have a, two backpacks full of stuff to go to class. <laughs> Are you learning more? That's a good question, isn't it? It's good to be here today. Um, I love this church. And it's an honor, privilege to be here to preach today. You read the newspaper this morning? News is no better today than it was yesterday. In fact, there's a hurricane, not a hurricane, but an earthquake in California, or has been, at Napa Valley, with considerable damage. Uh, there's trouble in Ferguson, Missouri. New York City, Wilmington, Syria, and Iraq, Ukraine. Things really haven't changed much. They don't change much because there's evil in the world. And the church needs to be doing something about it. You say, what can we do? Well, I want to talk to you today about awakening and revival. If you don't like history, you may not like part of this sermon because I'm going to take you back a few years and talk to you about some of the things that God has done in the past and ask the question, can he and will he do these things in the future? What is awakening or revival? Awakening or revival is when something happens that cannot be explained in natural terms. It's something that God does, and you cannot explain it in any other way. It's when God changes lives. And some of you have had awakening and revival in your own lives. And you know what that is. You know that he changed you when, when you tried to change yourself and you didn't do it. It's when God does something. It cannot be explained. It cannot be orchestrated. It cannot be manipulated. But it can be influenced by the church. And we want to talk about how that happens today. Now, what about the history of a revival and awakening in this country? There was, a, was an awakening in 1727. 1734, that was called the Great Awakening. 1792, just after the Revolutionary War. In the mid-1800s, in 1904 and 1905. History's still out on whether there's been one since then. We can look at the time after the Second World War when People like Billy Graham came to prominence. We can look at the 70s when the parachurch 
organizations came to prominence. There are times that we can look and say, is, was that awakening? Was that revival? Jonathan Edwards was pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts. He's best remembered for this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was a very staid, formal Episcopalian minister. When he preached, he held his manuscript up in front of his face like this. You could hardly see him, and he had his glasses down on his nose. But when he preached, people were saved. Not too much the style of today. He's best remembered for this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was one of America's early theologians and thinkers. He read a book by John Erskine, a Scottish Presbyterian pastor, about revival. He wrote a response to this book on revival. I want to put up on the screen the title of this response. Now, this is the title, not the book. A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to scripture promises and prophecies concerning the last time. That was the title. (laughs) Not the sermon. Not the book. Notice the things I've underlined. Put up the next screen. Notice what he was in, in... emphasizing. He wanted to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for revival. Do we need that today? I want to explore that this morning. Why doesn't it happen more often? Is God still all-powerful? Can he do anything he wishes? Is God Strong enough to bring revival? Does God want to revive his people? Does God want an increase in morality, compassion, healing, justice, social reform? Does he want people to have peace in their hearts? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should should reach repentance. I guess the big question for us as a church, as God's people is, can we manipulate God? Can we influence him? Can we do anything about it? How can we influence awakening and revival. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, and you're familiar with this, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He says, if my people... That's an all-inclusive term. If God's people 
And there's something implied here that I want to emphasize throughout the message today. If my people, my people unified with one mind, if my people humble themselves, if, they, if they're honest and reverent in their approach to God, if they pray, if they communicate the, the desires of their heart, is it really the desire of the church of God's people to see revival and awakening? Is it just a fleeting thought or is it an obsession? You know, it's okay to be obsessed about some things. I believe it's okay to be obsessed about revival, about changing something in our country and in our psyche that's negative, that's destructive. They humble themselves. If they're honest and reverent as they come to me, if they communicate the desires of their heart, one of the problems with the desires of our heart, they're very self-centered. And it's okay to be self-centered as long as we're also other-centered. Now, school is starting. There's going to be a lot of prayer with school starting, especially on test time. A lot of praying goes on in the classroom, and they can't stop that kind of praying, even though it's supposedly illegal. But we need to pray. We need to communicate the desires of our heart, and the desires of our heart should be connected to our desire for revival and awakening in our country and in our world. If they seek my face, if they seek me and not a vendor of blessings, a lot of us treat prayer like it's a vending machine. We get in the proper posture, get in the proper frame of mind, make our request known, and God pops out an answer. I've been praying for a long time and I'm still waiting on some of the answers. It seems the vending machine is sort of slow sometimes. If they turn from their wicked ways, if they repent, I trust you're still meditating on John's series of sermons on becoming something. Repentance Repentance is behavior corrected by the Spirit of God. It's something we become. We become something other than what we are. Attitudes are changed. Sin patterns are changed. Addictions are changed. Not because we decide and by our willpower affect these changes, but because of the Spirit of God working in our lives. Then comes forgiveness and healing. Now that sounds like a formula for revival and awakening, doesn't it? You know, point one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We like formulas. We like outlines. But I'm not too sure it's a formula for revival. I think it's something much more subtle. It's 
These, these are more likely guidelines for a right relationship with God. If we look at these items, unity, hum, humility, prayer, seeking God's face, turning from wicked ways. If we look at these things, we see honesty and reverence, the proper desires of heart. They have to do with a relationship. Then comes forgiveness and healing. Let's see how Jesus answers some of the above questions. He puts it in one sentence. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Second Chronicles 7, 14 can be all put into that one verse. John 15, 7. If you abide in me, if you nurture your relationship with me, and if what I've told you and taught you is really abiding in you, if it's really remaining in you, if it's really working in your life, if the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life, ask whatever you wish. You're not going to want something that's not my will, and so it's safe to ask. And it will be done for you. One of my favorite passages is John 17, 20 through 23. It's on page 772 in the Bible in your pew. If you would turn to that passage, let's look at it for just a minute. Because it really is the essence of how revival comes. Jesus is praying. He knows what's before him. And he prays for us and he clears up the kind of praying we should do when we're praying for awakening or revival or anything else. All our praying should be relational. Talking to God, talking to someone that loves us and that we love back. Talking to someone that we want to please. Talking to someone whose heart's desire is important to us. Jesus is praying. He says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about all of the people he's prayed before. We'll not go into that right now. But also for those who believe in me through their word. Jesus has prayed for his disciples. And now he's praying for you and me. Those who will believe in me through their word. We have believed through the word of God's disciples and his apostles. I was saved because someone who was reached by a disciple 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 reached me, reached my Sunday school teacher, reached my mother, reached those who would witness to me. That they may all be one That word one is just three letters, but it's so important. It has to do with unity. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
You ever think about the reason Jesus wants us to be one? Our unity impacts the world. When people see you and me, and they see us loving each other, when they see us unified, not always agreeing, but when they see us trying to reach conclusions based on the word of God and based on our love for one another and based on honest, open discussion, then they see something they don't see anywhere else. Where do you see it? Do you see it in government? Do you see it in Ferguson today? Do you see it in the United Nations? Do you see it at NATO? That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. When the world sees us unified, the good, good, they're going to be more likely to receive Jesus. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, that they may be one even as we are one. Here's that one word again, that unity word. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. That the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. When the church does things, the will of God, when we do the will of God in unity, we please God, and he answers in a timely manner. I'm sure some of you remember my old sermons. I won't give a quiz. But I preached about prayer several Christmases ago, many Christmases ago, and went to Luke, the first chapter, verses 5 through 7. There's some things about prayer here that were very important for me when I learned them. And I'm sure many of you know them. They'll be important for you, or they are important for you. In Luke 1, 5 through 7, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. They were praying like Second Chronicles seven fourteen said to pray. They were righteous. They had forsaken their wicked ways. They were righteous before God, walking blamelessly. The scripture is saying this, not their best friend. They weren't saying this about themselves. The Holy Spirit's saying this. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. They were old. They couldn't have kids anymore. They're advanced in years. Some of you are advancing in years. You're not as advanced in years as some of the rest of us. 
But they had a problem. Now look back up uh, at Luke 1, 11. Or look down at Luke 1, 11 to 13. I'm sorry. One day, Zechariah was functioning as a priest. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right hand of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. You'd be troubled too if you saw an angel. The next time James Coleman comes to get ready for the worship service, he comes in here and he sees an angel standing up here. He's, it's going to get his attention. He was troubled when he saw him and he, fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. Here the scripture reveals several principles of answered prayer. First, the prayer must be according to the will of God. Second, the person praying must be according to the will of God. The prayer needs to be according to the will of God. The person needs to be according to the will of God. They were both upright in the sight of God. And third, God sometimes delays the answer to our prayers so he can answer it better. Elizabeth was barren. They had prayed. But now they were both well along in years. But the angel says, when they're well along in years, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you're to give him the name John. Sometimes God waits to answer our prayers so he can answer them better. He wanted Elizabeth and Zechariah to be the parents of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. They had to wait a long time, and sometimes we have to wait a long time for the answers to our prayer. Sometimes we have to wait on revival. Sometimes we have to wait on awakening, but that still does not mean we should quit praying. It means we should be grateful to God for the privilege of coming to him and continually laying our concerns and desires at his throne of mercy. What would happen if the churches of the United States started praying in unity for change? I want to share some history with you. got a lot of history. There's a lot of history behind us. Isn't that true? You've got a lot of history. Some of you don't have as much history as some of the rest of us. Some of you are, if you're in college, you're making history. Some of us have made it and uh, just think about it a lot. I want to take you to 2000, I'm sorry, to 1905. I want to talk to you and tell you about something that was happening. How did it begin? How did this revival begin? How did this awakening begin? 
A lot of people have heard about the Welsh Revival. It started in 1904. It began as a movement of prayer. Evan Roberts was the prominent name in this revival. Evan Roberts lived until the 1950s, but most of us have never heard of him before. Not many of us have. I think he died in 1955, the year I graduated from high school. He was a man devoted to God. Another man by the name of Seth Joshua, a Presbyterian evangelist, came to Evan Roberts College where he was studying for the ministry. Evan Roberts was 26 then and He'd been a coal miner and he was studying for the ministry. The students were so moved by Seth Joshua's ministry that they asked if they could attend his next campaign nearby. So they canceled classes to go to a nearby church, nearby village where he was preaching. Seth Joshua prayed publicly, oh God, bend us. Bend us. And then he fell to his knees and said, Oh God, bend me. Upon his return to his school, Evan Roberts could not concentrate on his studies. He went to the principal of his college and explained, I keep hearing a voice that tells me to go home and speak to our young people at my church. The principal of the school said, that's certainly not the voice of the devil, it's the voice of God. The devil never gives orders like that, so you can have the week off if you want it. So he went back to his home and announced to the pastor, I've come to preach. I keep hearing a voice that tells me that there's something wrong in our churches. The pastor wasn't convinced. But he asked, how about speaking at prayer meeting on Monday? He didn't even let him speak at the prayer meeting, but he told the praying people, our younger brother, Evan Roberts, feels he has a message for you, and so if you care to wait after the meeting's over, he can tell you about it. 17 people waited behind. They were impressed with the directness of his words. Evan Roberts told told those who were there, I have a message to you from God. Notice what he told them. You must confess any known sin to God and put wrong any right to man. You must put right any wrong done to man. Second, you must put away any doubtful habit. Third, you must obey the Spirit promptly. And finally, you must confess your faith in Christ publicly. By 10 o'clock that evening, all 17 responded. The pastor was so pleased that he asked, how about speaking at the mission service tomorrow night and the midweek service on Wednesday night? Evan Roberts preached all week and he was asked to stay another week and then the break came.
Edwin Orr, who writes a lot about historically about awakening and revival, said, I've read all the Welsh newspapers of the period. In them were snippets of ecclesiastical news, such as Reverend so-and-so has been appointed chaplain. So-and-so has moved to a certain church. But he said, suddenly there was a headline in the newspapers. Great crowds of people drawn to Longor, the name of Evan Roberts' village. For some days, a young man named Evan Roberts was causing great surprise. The main road between the villages on which the church was situated was packed. Wall to wall, people were trying, trying to get into the church. Shopkeepers closed early so that their employees could find a place to sit. The news was out. A reporter was sent down and he described vividly what he saw. A strange meeting which closed at 425 in the morning. And even then the people didn't seem willing to go. There was social impact as this revival continued throughout the villages and towns of Wales. For example, judges were presented with white gloves because there were no cases to try. There were no robberies, no burglaries, no rapes, no murders, no embezzlements, nothing. District councils held emergency meetings to discuss what to do with the police now that they were unemployed. In one place, the sergeant of the police was sent for and asked, what do you do with your time? And he replied, before the revival, we had crowds to deal with. But now the crowds are at the churches and they're not unruly. Then there was a strike in the mines. But you know what caused the strike in the mines, the coal mines? The horses that drew the carts out of the mines did not understand the language of the converted workers. They had to be taught a new language that was not filled with profanity. Well, the Welsh revival spread throughout the world, especially to the United States, to Great Britain, to South Africa, to New Zealand, to Australia, throughout the English-speaking world anyway. You see, but that was a long time ago. But it spread to the United States. It spread to New York City. It spread to New York City in 1905, and within about six months, there were prayer meetings all over New York City. The New York Times had a column that was entitled those who were saved yesterday and listed the names of people who were converted. History doesn't tell you much about those revivals, does it? Especially not about New York. Can this happen again? Well, it can with concerted prayer. In 1857 and 58, there was another prayer movement. With a little planning, a nationwide revival broke out among God's people in union prayer meetings. In the awakening that followed, nearly one million people accepted Christ and became involved in churches in a two-year period. 
based on percentages of converts to the general population, a similar move of God in our day would result in at least 10 to 12 million people turning to Christ. There was great need in those days. The years leading up to 1857 were years of tremendous growth and prosperity. Population was blooming or booming. People were moving west. People were prosperous. An employed businessman, Jeremiah Lamphere, was a lay missionary. He began to visit homes, distribute Bibles and tracts, and advertise church services. Facing a discouraging response, he found comfort in prayer. He said, Lord, what would you have me to do? So he decided he was going to announce a prayer meeting, and the first prayer meeting, six people showed up. The second week, 20 attended. 40, the third. The hunger and thirst after God was evident, and they began a daily union prayer meeting in the fourth week. People of all classes of society and from many denominations attended. Then came an economic crash. God has a praying people in place when the financial crash of 1857 hit. The daily prayer meetings began. Merchants by the thousands all over the country were forced to the wall. Banks failed. Railroads went into bankruptcy. In New York City alone, in 1857, 30,000 people lost their jobs. Added to the financial crisis, the nation was gripped by the tensions over slavery. The future of the nation was bleak indeed. What do you think about the future of this nation? Is it bleak? It could be said today that, at least right now, it is. Then what do we do? What do God's people do? I believe God's people unify in prayer. I think they have to decide what they want. What would help church growth any more than a revival in this country? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. My prayer for our country is that the churches become unified in a prayer for revival and awakening. And they would wait on God to do his work. Let's pray. Father, there are so many needs in our lives. There are personal needs. There are relational needs. There are family needs. There are vocational needs. Some of us are really stressed on our jobs. We're stressed in our families. 
We're stressed about our relatives, our children, our grandchildren. We're stressed about the news that we get day by day of violence in our world and the threat of terrorism. I pray, Father, that you would unify us in our desire to see a change, that you would unify us in our desire to pray together, to seek your face, and to let you heal our land. Father, I pray for each person here today that you would talk to, their, talk to them personally and that you would plant in them a desire to see revival, to see change, to see an awakening in this great country. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.